0: This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekalona. Humans are peculiar. We're capable of thoughts, feelings, and expressions ranging from unconditional love to insidious hate. It begs the question, where do we learn those concepts? And then, how do we unlearn them? Here's a good one. How does someone who has been a member of a group that professes hatred for other humans leave that community and ideology behind? What are the steps? What is the process like? Who are the people that can help them?
1: One thing we can do is help people understand the trickery, the snake oil, help people understand how they have and can be taken advantage of during times of distress.
0: There is no excuse for hate and oppression. That much is very clear. However, when one recognizes the poison of thoughts and actions, how can they walk away from beliefs that they feel are key to their identities? How can they move forward fully accountable for their actions? Is there potential for redemption? In today's episode, we talk with a clinical psychologist about implicit bias and counselors on how to bring back family and friends who may have gone too far down the QAnon rabbit hole. Up next is my conversation with a former white supremacist who is helping others to leave these groups and shed the thoughts of hate. Nimono starts now. Tony McAleer is a native of Vancouver, Canada, a father of two, and a former skinhead. He's the author of the book titled Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist's journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. This week we had a riveting conversation by way of Zoom. Here's that talk. Tony, can you tell me about how you became involved in white supremacist groups? If I
2: go back really to my childhood is where it starts and I grew up in a very affluent part of Vancouver, Canada. My father was a doctor. I lived a life of privilege, Mm -hmm. um, no question. I went to boarding school in England, and there I gave him contact with Skinheads for the first time. I was already flirting with the punk scene, and I remember coming back to Vancouver, and in England, Doc Martens were a dime a dozen, and not so much here in North America. They were expensive. Mm -hmm. So I'm outside my very first punk rock show in 1983. And these two skinheads from Vancouver, they come walking down the line. I'm standing there with my ticket and they they see my Doc Martens and they stop at me and they look at my feet and then they look at me and then they look at my feet and they look at me and they go, what size feet you have? I don't know why they're asking because if they're the right size, they're, they're, they're going to take them. And I'm literally shaking in my boots. And I lied and I said, you know, seven and a half. And and they said, uh, nah, they, they wouldn't fit you anyways. And off they walked around the corner. Hmm. Those two guys became my best friends. Because my bullying survival strategy was befriend the bully, become the bully. I wasn't a tough kid growing up. I wasn't a strong kid. I wasn't an athletic kid. But I found safety in hanging out with those guys. When I was with them, people for the first time were afraid of me. Mm. And they weren't afraid of me. They were afraid of the guys on either side of me. But that feeling of power, coming from that place of feeling physically powerless, that void being filled by that feeling of power, was intoxicating and in order to have their protection because in a crazy way i felt safe with them as bizarre as that seems none of this is rational in order to have their protection i had to have their respect and in order to have their respect i had to commit all the same violence that they did and slowly but surely i did and became more and more acclimatized to it and somebody asked me once you know tony how did you lose your humanity you seem like such a nice guy and i said i didn't lose it i traded it for acceptance and approval until there was nothing left Mm. From there, the music went from violence, drinking, and football hooliganism, and you know, typical skinhead stuff. It took a veer to the right, and white power music burst on the scene. And I was sort of at the the front of, of that. And the more extreme I went, and influencing the people around me to come with me, the more notoriety, the more fear we generated, which was again intoxicating that false sense of power and. But I just want to be very clear here for your audience. I don't blame anything that I did on my childhood. Everything I did, I chose to do. And I have to accept responsibility for those choices. And, yeah. and, and I hold myself accountable for those choices. The reason I share is so you can understand the lens through which I made those choices. Mm-hmm. And the analogy I like to use is, you ever gone to the grocery store? And when you're really, really hungry, you spend a little too much time in the middle, the middle aisles. It's kind of like that. I went out into the world emotionally hungry. And I made horrific choices that hurt an awful lot of people and including
0: myself. I've heard a lot of similarities. I used to teach in South Los Angeles. I used to teach at a high school for kids who got kicked out of high school and talking to them and, and counselors and people would say, why are you so deeply involved in this very destructive gang, the Crips, the Bloods, MS-13, and they had similar stories. You know, I
2: think it all, all boils
0: down to at a,
2: at a core level, toxic shame. And toxic shame is the alienation of the self. It's the dehumanization of the self. It's the belief that we're not good enough. We're less than, we're not pretty enough, we're not smart enough. You know, we look in the mirror and we see flaws and and we believe these lies about ourselves that that we develop because of the experiences that we've had when we're we're younger. If somebody does something to you, you think it's your fault. You think it's because you're not good or anything like that. And At a young age for a child and, and a young adult, these things form part of our self-identity belief system and they exist like right at the core of, of our subconscious. You know, yeah. we're not conscious of it, but we live our lives in reaction to that shame. And toxic shame is the byproduct of trauma. It's created by physical and sexual trauma, but it can have a non-physical component, abandonment, neglect. There's other ways that that emotional trauma that sticks around in the, in the subconscious long after the scars and wounds have healed. Mm-hmm. And so as human beings, we spend an inordinate amount of time doing one of two things, hiding the shame from the world and hiding that from ourselves. Toxic shame is the dirty secret we hide from ourselves. Mm. We do one or the other or both. In my case, we internalize and mask and numb the feeling, substance abuse, eating disorders, These are all ways to mask and hide shame and to not feel it. And suicide is the ultimate internalized expression of toxic shame. On the other end of the spectrum, we project it onto other people, like a pufferfish or porcupine. We make ourselves to be big and scary to hide the feeling that we're weak. Some people who are former world leaders need to win every transaction and every deal. There has to be a winner and a loser so that they can feel Hmm. strong because deep down inside, that's coming from a place of absolute weakness and they're constantly having to prove to the world that they're strong. So emotional violence, physical violence, whether we join a gang or a skinhead group or a neo-Nazi group, or there's a whole host of things. Murder is the ultimate externalized toxic shame expression. And there's a great book by Dr. James Gilligan called Violence, Reflections on a National Epidemic. And he was a prison psychiatrist You know, in his work with inmates and his time he spent in the prisons, you know, he came to the conclusion that all violence is an attempt to convert shame to self-esteem. He never saw, was aware of an act of violence in that setting that wasn't rooted in shame and humiliation, you know.
0: Now that you know about the toxic shame and how it's expressed, was that a really prevalent factor of what was going on with yourself and the people in these organizations?
2: Well, at the time I was in them, I had no idea what toxic shame was. Mm-hmm. That came out later through therapy and counseling and understanding my own process. The more I understood of my own process, the more I could see and recognize it in other people and understand that toxic shame and the things that lead up to it, they're, they're not excuses. Yeah. But from that place of understanding, it, that's the foundation for healing and dealing with it. So someone said to me once on a radio show, you're just a frightened little boy. And I couldn't understand what he meant, like, what are you talking about, frightened little boy? I'm not afraid of anything. Yeah. But really, when I when I look at it, <laughs> I was a frightened little Tony dressed up, you know, in Doc Martens in a bomber jacket. And and when I reflect on that, that was bang on, um, mm-hmm. bang on right. And when I look at some of the people that are you know actively involved in these groups, whether it be Proud Boys or skinheads or whatever, they're f- frightened two-year-olds having a temper tantrum in a grown man's body or, yeah. or yeah. woman's. But I'm also cognizant of the fact is that there's probably nothing more dangerous Mm -hmm. than a toddler having a temper tantrum in a grown man's body. So it never loses sight of the fact of the real danger that these individuals and their organizations represent.
0: Now, you say that they're very dangerous. Is it because a two-year-old lacks a certain amount of critical thinking, is relying purely on emotion, is prone to temper tantrums and outbursts, and has no thought about any consequences or doesn't necessarily care?
2: That and their ability for self-control is hasn't mm. really developed yet. Yeah. You know, it's I get caught up in the sweep of emotions and just lash out.
0: Yeah. Is that something that would happen when you were a part of these groups? Was that promoted? Was that something that was given honor to?
2: The 15 years that I was sort of in it from about 83 to about 98, about half of that was spent sort of as a skinhead. So it started less political, but leaning to the right nationalistic, jingoistic skinhead got more political. And then as a skinhead organization that I did start it, but I was leader of it, you know, there were certain members of the groups that were out of control mm-hmm. that would do acts of violence that would bring down heat, or they would do things that had repercussions for the group. So there was always that element of lack of control and their their whole lives were that way. And in 1989, when I first was on the Montel Williams show, I was dressed like a skinhead. When I was on a show again with John Metzger two years later, I was in a suit and tie Mm. And that began the effort to distance myself from that out of control element. I was still connected to it, but really didn't want to be visibly associated with it. Put away the bomber jackets, grow your hair out, look presentable, wear a suit, and deliver these ideas in a more, it's like marketing 101. Yeah. Make yourself look more like your audience if you want them to align themselves with you. And so, we had to do a, like a, almost like a rebrand and portray this clean cut image. You know, Richard Spencer does it, John mm-hmm. Metzger did mm-hmm. it, I did it. And so many of the strategies go to college, join law enforcement, join the military, do all of these things. But those strategies have played
0: out over the years. You can see the results. Did you always have doubts? I mean, was there one thing that prompted you to realize that white supremacy is false or was it something that grew out of time?
2: It's less about the ideology. Ideology is important. You have to be okay with the ideology, but the ideology is the pill you swallow in order to get the community, to get the acceptance, the brotherhood. These are the draws to these organizations that they offer. And it's people that have vulnerabilities that have those gaps in their lives that Mm -hmm. are attracted most to that. Mm -hmm. And where they have those gaps in their lives, that's often the result of toxic shame. The level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mere reflection of how internally disconnected and dehumanized we are you know it 's that self alienation and if i can 't connect to my own humanity, I certainly can 't connect to yours yes for me, it wasn 't just what I believed, it was who I was. it was my identity, and ideology and identity get intertwined, and that's that's the difficult part it 's not so much what they believe. It's who they are. It's what I listened to. It's what I read. It's the friends I hung out with, the movies I watched. If there was a white supremacist breakfast cereal, I would have eaten it. You know, it's just, it's sort of all encompassing. And that's the challenge when you're trying to help someone leave. I mean, if you go and challenge someone's ideology, you're also challenging their identity. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the, the ego defense mechanisms come up and it's very difficult. We have to use other sort of non-intuitive strategies to bypass the alarm system, so to speak.
0: Speaking of that, what was your journey out like? Did someone come to you and did your defense mechanisms, your alarms come up? Well, there was lots of people
2: that had tried that over the years and people have a hard time admitting that their ideas are wrong.
0: Mm.
2: It's an even harder time admitting who they are is wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It was a process, but the catalyst started with the birth of my children and being in the delivery room at 23 and holding this little tiny, fragile, beautiful little girl. And she's giving it that with the scrunchy face. And, and I'm, I'm looking at her. She opens her eyes for the first time. And my face was the first picture her brain took. And I, I sort of really connected to another human being for the first time since I couldn't remember when. Mm -hmm. and my son that was born 15 months later, you know, I got to parent him the way that I always wanted to be parented, and my dad worked 80 hours a week, and I never saw him, so it was kind of cathartic, in that started the thawing process, because up until this point, I was 100% had my head so far up my ego, it wasn't funny. I was a complete narcissist, Mm -hmm. attention whore, and all kinds of things. I was always, for the first time, I started thinking about someone else other than myself, and it was my, my two kids. And the thing that was amazing to me was that they're safe to love at that age. They're not capable of shaming. They're not capable of ridicule. They're not capable of rejection. So I could allow myself to unguard and connect to them and to feel. Because I had completely cut myself off. And my children taught me my first lesson in compassion. They couldn't even speak the word and they had no idea what that concept was. But when we're compassionate with someone, we hold a mirror up, allow them to see themselves reflected back at them. They get to see their humanity reflected back at them. And I got to see glimpses of my humanity reflected back at me through the faces of my children, through the eyes of, of mm. my children. And that began sort of the journey of, of leaving that movement behind and the journey really from my head to my heart. And compassion is the antidote to mm. shame. Mm -hmm. I ended up being a single father with two kids. It was back in the 90s when single fathers were unicorns and treated completely differently than single mothers were. True. I have a great respect for all single mothers out there because of that. And in a way, I started to get acceptance, approval, pats on the back and everything for taking care of these two kids on my own. And and the other thing was so full of dysfunction, it takes in so much time and energy to be that angry all the time and to hang around with angry people, it's draining. And it, I decided to walk away from the movement, but not say, hey, you guys are a bunch of idiots, I'm out of here. I kept my beliefs intact because that was hard for me to give up because it was my identity. But I said, hey, I've done all this for Supreme Court of Canada twice and all this legal struggles and to fight for the cause To fight for a bunch of white people who couldn't care whether I lived or died, really, if if I asked them, I hadn't dealt with any of the reasons why it was attractive in the first place. So I was still a jerk to people, Mm. you know. I was still mean verbally when I got drunk and things like that, and abused alcohol and other things as a way of coping with it afterwards. And it wasn't until two thousand five when I met sort of a coach and, and mentor and started to do his personal growth and personal development workshops and how to deal with the ego and get out of your own way. And after about eight months, things are going really good. And my, my friend who had introduced us, uh, it's my birthday and he hands me an envelope. So I open up this envelope and pull out a gift certificate and it's, it's a gift certificate for a free one-on-one counseling session with this guy. Wow. Yeah. Great. Who, who doesn't want therapy for their birthday, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was excited. I go to this first ever for me counseling therapy session and, And I tell them about why I'm angry at my dad and my anger angry at my mom. And I tell them about all this stuff and blame, blame, blame. And I stop and I think to myself, don't want to tell them the rest. In my experience, when people found out about my past, that was the end of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was the end of an entire social circle in like a second. Mm -hmm. I'm humming and hawing and he's saying, you know, whatever it is, mate, you know, we've only got an hour. Just let's let's get it out in a. So out he comes, Reader's Digest version of neo-Nazi skinheads, Holocaust denial, the whole works. And the more I tell him, the more he starts smiling. The more he starts smiling, I start getting, like, annoyed. He leans in with a big grin on his face and goes, you know, I'm Jewish, right? (laughs) Of course, of course. You know, and and here, here he is this Jewish man that that loves me, wants to heal me, wants to help my family and wants the best for me. And and here I am sinking into my chair, knowing that I once advocated for the annihilation of him and his people. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, that's what you did. That's not who you are. That began a powerful journey of healing, reconnecting to my humanity and healing healing those wounds. Probably did a thousand hours of one-on-one and group counseling, it was after about five or six years after that, that I was in a position where I w- was able to co-found Life After Hate and sort of take the work
0: public and work with others. Well, tell me about that. I mean, these groups, they use hate as the social bond, which you, you just said, you know, it's a community of people who feel like they don't have much going on. And here is this group of people who say that they love you. They will take you in, you get involved, you get indoctrinated to the ideology. But how do you help someone disentangle from those created communities that they may feel obligated to when they're trying to leave that ideology, that group, that toxicity behind? So first of all, I mean, we can't
2: make someone leave that doesn't want to leave.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Well, what we can do is we can highlight contradictions. We can highlight and speed up the disillusionment process. When you sit down with someone and People often say to me, you know, what's the first thing you say? And I said, well, it's it's actually not what I'd say. It's it's what I do. And it's it's, it's, as I'd listen. And often these people have a legitimate grievance in their life. Where they've gone to solve that grievance is completely illegitimate. But for them, the grievance is real. And what they've made up about that grievance is real. And they've often never had an outlet to be able to express it. So when we sit there and we listen to them, and when we listen to them, it's we don't accept the view, we don't accept their beliefs. We don't approve their beliefs. We're simply giving them a space to be heard. Don't get me wrong. We despise the ideology. We despise the activity, but we never despise the human being. Often we can get at what's behind it all. Where's the where's the wound? What's the irritation? That's got nothing to do with anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and get them to reflect on that in, internal stuff and get them counseling to heal heal the wounds.
0: In, In your findings from the people that you've worked with, what is really keeping the people who are disillusioned with the principles of white supremacy involved? Is it just to have that sense of community, even though they may not, they're becoming disillusioned with maybe some of the actions of some of the leaders?
2: Absolutely. This movement is so full of ego and narcissism, so much infighting and drama going on all the time and hypocrisy and backstabbing and you know when you get a thousand toxic people in a room and you end up with a really toxic place oh
0: yeah yeah i <laughs> can smell it for miles
2: then, yeah yeah and and so people get tired of it but they also the hardest part in leaving is i think you know we have to go through what i call the void and you have to leave a whole social circle and everyone you know behind but letting go of all of that who am i was you know discover that as you go through the through the void and when you discover who your authentic self is, you'll attract a new social circle if you conduct yourself with right actions. Mm-hmm. But in the middle, you have nothing, and it's incredibly lonely. And I think sometimes the pain of the loneliness of the void can be perceived to be greater than the pain of dysfunction of being in the group. And I think that's when people are at most risk of going back because they can't stand to be alone. Mm-hmm. And what we did when I was at Life After Hate was we created a community in the void okay. of people that had already gone through the void and wanted to help others through it, let them know that they're not alone, as well as people that were going through it at the time. And I, it doesn't have to be a, a lonely place.
0: When you were watching the events unfold on January 6th, You know, some of the people were carrying swastikas and that sort of thing, the Confederate flag. What was going through your mind as you watched that footage? First
2: of all, I couldn't get over how easy it was for them to do what they did. You know, I saw this protest at the Capitol and then all of a sudden they're inside the building and and it was surreal watching them walk inside the velvet ropes. And some of them, I think, didn't know what to do once they got there. There was Mm -hmm. some that very clearly had malintent and knew what they were going to try and do once they got inside. But there was others that are just kind of, caught up in it, taking selfies with statues. And it It was, I also reminded me of times that I was involved in sort of group violence and and believing in something so strongly that you were willing to commit violence for it and to be caught up in that wave of emotion and common sense goes out the window. You get caught up in the the swell and and the currents of the mob. Truly frightening things can take place when that mob mentality takes over and reason leaves the room
0: what would you say to people in racist groups are they capable of being shown the pain of their beliefs the more they
2: understand their own pain Mm -hmm. like the more i understood my pain Mm
0: -hmm.
2: the more i could understand the pain that i caused that the pain other people were going through i talk about compassion the sort of radical compassion the sort of three components to radical compassion one is your practice of compassion must take you outside your comfort zone number two your practice of compassion should have a social activist element in that, you know, if compassion is alleviating the suffering of another, radical compassion incorporates changing the environment, which supports or gives rise to the suffering in the first place. Mm-hmm. Then the third, and this is the most important piece, is in order to give compassion to others, we must mine it from within ourselves, the journey inward. And if we have compassion for other people and not for ourselves, that's not compassion. That, that's mm-hmm. ego. That's about being seen to be compassionate. Mm-hmm. We have compassion for ourselves and nobody else. That's narcissism. Mm-hmm. So in order to generate the capacity to recognize the humanity of others, we have to go inward. So if someone's completely disconnected, we can't get them to connect to another human being by taking them to another human being and showing them suffering we have to take them to themselves and let them discover and connect to their own suffering and how it all works and it was one of the hardest things i had to do because it was like well that sounds like how self-serving good for you you can have compassion forgiveness for yourself yeah and i'm like i I don't deserve it i know what i've done to people and what i've said and the harm that i've created i I wanted to go to where i would caused the pain and i was Thinking about it one day, reading reading a book and reading the Dalai Lama. And they said, the more I have compassion and forgiveness for myself, the more I diminish my capacity to do harm. Mm-hmm. We either heal our pain or we are our pain. Mm-hmm. So it's get them out of the group, get them away from the group. Disengagement, that first step is really just like basic. It's not the destination. It's just the first step. It's basic harm reduction for the rest of society. Mm-hmm. From there, They will continue to be dysfunctional until they have someone help them. Once they've got some stability there, then they can go back and in a meaningful way, in a positive way, go back where possible to the communities that they've harmed. They can take steps to make amends, to atone for the things that they've done, to engage in the healing work with the communities that they've harmed. And to go and engage in that work without first doing the healing work on the self is a recipe for disaster. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Thank you again very much for taking time to speak with me. Here's Tony McAleer. Thanks for being on No More Normal. Will you come back on in the future? Absolutely. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and The Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the Kellogg Foundation and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. This is No More Normal, or Nomono. I'm Khalil e. We are asking the question, how do people change their mind about core beliefs and walk back extremism? We are getting answers from the very people who help others leave those ideologies behind. The first half of the show was dedicated to a conversation with a former white supremacist. In the next 30 minutes, we hear from a psychology professor from Yale who specializes in aversive racism, a marriage and family therapist, and a cult mediation specialist. Stick with us. Since 1989, Joseph Kelly has been a specialist in helping people leave cults. He works with a group called Cult Mediation, established in 1984, to help families and friends understand and respond to the complexity of a loved one's cult involvement. Let me begin by asking, you know, in doing research for everything, I've discovered that one of the similarities that people have when engaging themselves in extremist groups such as either white supremacy or QAnon or any type of Conspiracy theory is that they had a sense of loneliness that they didn't have much going on in their lives They wanted to be a part of something bigger Talk to me about that essential hole in people's lives that these extremist beliefs and groups attempt and do fill
3: Well, I think at a time of instability in society in general That people are drawn to places and groups which try to explain the reality that they're witnessing and actually hopefully bring them out of that one might call cognitive dissonance, that period of just being unsure and not knowing where they belong in the society at large.
0: Now, what does that say about the daily lives of Americans? You know, you pay attention to advertisements and social media. It's as if everyone is living their best life, even though something may be missing. And these extremist beliefs, ideologies, and groups seem to be filling that. Is it a case of Americans necessarily being unfulfilled in our lives?
3: I think that, you know, uh, material wealth and the comforts that come along with it are you know the goal of the america dream mm-hmm. so when that isn't fulfilled in your every day there are others that come along and say we can fulfill you in another way and by connection with us we will clarify the points of contention that you may feel even though their solutions are not logically consistent with where the person intended to go. You find people getting involved in groups that promote a political ideal, you know, a societal ideal. So we're currently in America in a place where, you know, the the, the shift is taking place between things as they were. And as we look at, they will become a more diverse society. That scares the heck out of many people. And, and the result is they're looking for stability is my tribe going to be left out the goal of america promotes it no we want to uplift all of us into a you know a better place but the groups say no 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 our exclusivity will allow you to experience what was intended for you know the ideals of american life
0: It's one thing to find a group of people to belong to because you're bored. It's another to adopt these ideologies of that group. A lot of people are lonely, yet they don't join cults or hate groups or become extremists. Are these folks who join this, are they predispositioned to think that way?
3: I think the idea that there's defective individuals out there who are more likely to join a cult is a misunderstanding. I think that all of us are vulnerable to con artistry, to Trusting someone who ends up being not who they said they were, even in relationships. You know, when looking at groups, they apply the same kinds of techniques in order to bring you in to a belief in what they have to offer. At one point, many years ago, it was middle to upper middle class people with at least two years of college education and, you know, a sense of some moment happening in their life where they felt at a crossroads at a moment of confusion or that they say, I want to be a scientist. And then at some point they realize that's unfulfilling. And how do I explain to my family that that's not where I want to go? Well, there may be someone out there that says the reason why this is unfulfilling is because you haven't looked at the serious problem mm. in your life. Mm. And we can Help you overcome those issues and clarify it. And in the moment, people may feel something they hadn't felt up to that moment. So you feel a sense of belonging. You feel satisfied and loved in a way that you've never felt before.
0: Have you seen an increase in people reaching out for help as they try to help loved ones or friends leave QAnon or extremist groups?
3: Absolutely. I think that. We've had, well, previous to the pandemic, we had very few calls coming in to our organization or to my colleagues' organizations. International Cultic Studies is a group that I work with, and so the calls coming in have increased, you know, a hundredfold.
0: Do you have advice for people whose family or friends may be starting to sound extreme in their thinking or their views or who are saying some kind of things that might begin to sound dangerous? Like, what is the process for trying to determine where this person you're seeking to talk to, where they're at, and then the appropriate response for however far along they are?
3: I think, you know, saying to a friend, hey, can we spend some time together? And it's that time together that, you know, is more important than the doctrine or the point of view that you want to share with them. If you see that individual fending off your suggestions about looking at things critically, these ideas, then you want to de-emphasize that because your relationship with them is going to be that which they can count on. And the relationships of, of the specter, of these ideologues who are, you know, just behind the screen is something that's going to be less effective. If you can have a one-on-one and just spend time, you know, hanging out, having a meal, these are things I think that realistically, if somebody's just dabbling, can have an effect on where you see them and where they appear to be going. Yeah,
0: I understand. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. He is Joe Kelly, a cult mediation specialist with cult Mediation. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for your time. appreciate it. My
3: pleasure. All the best to you.
0: Diane Ben-Scooter is the founder of the nonprofit Antidote, which works to de-radicalize people, and it takes a public health approach to psychological manipulation. She draws from her own experience inside a religious cult and later as a deprogrammer, helping families and their loved ones to free them from similar religious cults and beliefs. She joins me now on No More Normal. Diane, thank you so much for being with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, you know, while doing research on this topic, a theme came up repeatedly throughout my reading is that many people who joined extremist groups did so to satisfy a sense of loneliness. They wanted to belong to something. Can you walk me through the links between isolation and persuasion?
1: Yes. It's really important to understand how someone who wants power over a group of people can use psychological manipulation to gain that power. And what they can prey on are people's fears and
0: desires. If a person is isolated and they're in a bit of despair, what are some of the tactics that these groups use to kind of hook and reel people in?
1: The two main goals of control over someone If you want to control their worldview, convince them that they can't really trust any other source of information than basically you or whoever the leader is or the source of information. And then you have to create an us-versus-them mentality. So you create an evil them and a good us. Then basically you've got a group of people that will fight your enemies, that will do what you want them to do. So that's the basic tactic, and at the extreme end of that is dehumanization, and dehumanization is when you can convince people that the other is not only evil or not good, bad people, but they're less than human, and that's the extreme.
0: We've been hearing the call for people to have these tough conversations with family, friends, loved ones, and facilitators like yourself. But we've also heard about people being afraid to create the tense atmospheres because one can only imagine that this atmosphere is ripe and thick with tension. How can we get to real honest discussions that lead to change while keeping in mind the fragility of the situation?
1: I think the most important thing is to learn empathy towards the person and that's really hard when someone is saying really horrible things. When you're in that kind of situation, your pride and dignity are involved. It's really hard to leave because it's become your identity and once it becomes your identity, you will fight for it so any kind of argument that comes up can be easily dissuaded by just a sound bite or two from your group to convince you that you're still okay. You're, you've still made the right decision because it's really hard. It was a shattering moment in my life. It was horrible to realize that I had fallen for a big line.
0: I imagine if you feel isolated before you get into this group, you definitely feel extremely isolated once you leave and trying mm-hmm. to work yourself back into a society, so to speak. What is the importance of having someone around outside of just someone offering empathy?
1: It's really important. And that's why I founded my nonprofit Antidote, because this is a huge crisis that we're in. Mm-hmm. There's possibly millions of people who have been
0: radicalized. We look at last year, 2020, we had a global pandemic hit. We also had a lot of civil unrest as the result of police violence against African-American and other minorities. This is really a big question, but maybe something in your research or your practice will help to answer it. But is the impact of pandemic on belief something we've never really seen before?
1: I think so. I know that it was really scary for me. And I don't think there's anyone that could say it wasn't scary for them. It was extremely scary and anytime there's existential fear, we have a need for someone to blame for this and some sort of belief to get behind to feel like we're doing something about it. People were desperate to have some explanation and they trusted the people that were in their circle on Facebook and it was really easy to infuse these lies into people's world about what was going
0: on. Now, the dangers of Facebook and social media is where a lot of these theories and ideas circulate. And as you just mentioned, it's a a nice little gateway, an entry point for a lot of people. Is the responsibility, does that lie partially or heavily upon social media companies to really determine what type of language, what type of messages that they allow on their platforms?
1: That's a slippery slope with Freedom of speech. Uh, where where do we draw that line, and who has the right to draw that line, and how is it done? But I think one thing we can do is to help people understand the trickery, the snake oil. Help people understand how they can, they have, and can be taken advantage of during times of distress. And so I think that if social media can help to put that messaging out, to help protect people and help them understand how this happened, I think that might be the easiest route or the best route to to doing this. Obviously, blatant hate speech should be prohibited, and I think that that's kind of undisputable.
0: I want to thank you very much for taking time to be with us, and thank you for the work that you do. She is Diane Ben Scotter. She is the founder of the nonprofit Antidote, which works to de-radicalize people by taking a public health approach to psychological manipulation. Again, Diane, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, and thanks for being with me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Dr. John Dovidio is a professor of psychology at Yale University. He specializes in the issues of social power, both between groups and individuals. He's an expert on explicit and implicit bias, and he studies aversive racism, a contemporary, subtle form of bias. We join the conversation as he talks about how people address their own implicit biases when they are directed at themselves or people who look like them.
4: Implicit biases come from the culture and the messages that everybody receives. One of the things to keep in mind, though, is that for people of color, they don't actually have to endorse these stereotypes. They just have to be aware of these stereotypes to be debilitating. Hmm. And one of the challenges of that exposure to implicit stereotypes is that we're often not aware that it's affecting the way we think and the way we feel about ourselves and the way we act. Hmm. So really, an essential aspect of it is to make people aware that these implicit stereotypes are being ingested. They are creating associations in people's mind. And even if they don't feel like they hate themselves or even if they reject these stereotypes, if you're simply aware that they have the potential to affect the way we think and the way we behave, despite our best intentions, it really helps people make at least the first step to overcoming these implicit stereotypes.
0: Are people today, are we bringing up the topic and having conversations about implicit bias more than we have in the past?
4: That's been the case until recent years, but now I think I've seen a real switch to the idea of systemic or structural racism is now probably even a more popular explanation of things to consider.
0: You do a lot of your research on aversive racism, yes. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
4: So psychologists historically who studied racism have often thought about racism as what I would call the model of a bad apple, that there's a small number of people out there that have this kind of hostile racism towards other groups, and they're what's causing the problem. What the aversive racism position, what we argued is, if you look at most white Americans, large portions, by some metrics, 80 to 85 percent of white Americans will say they're not prejudiced, Mm -hmm. that they're not biased in any way. But according to the Aversive Racism Framework, we said, you know, given the messages we get from society, given the traditional stereotypes, given the structures that make us a segregated society, it's hard to believe that 85% of white Americans could actually ignore all of those pressures and truly be unprejudiced. And so what we speculated years ago was that most white Americans who say they're not prejudiced, who believe they're not prejudiced, who believe they're part of the solution, might also have unconscious biases that they deny, that they're not aware of that can make them part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So what it tried to do was turn the attention away from the few bad apples and extremist kind of racists to getting most white Americans to think about at least the possibility that it's hard not to be biased Mm -hmm. in our society, given, given the history of our society and given the current state of our society.
0: Yeah, you know, speaking about 85% of white Americans not believing that they're racist and that, that they are part of the solution, it leads me to ask how important is it for all of us to remember that racism is to be fought by everyone, given what we discussed at the top of the interview. Sometimes we place it to where racism is a creation of white Americans and white Americans alone are the ones to really solve that and put an end to it but I feel like it's a a message and a a task for all of us, given that in America, these biases that we are exposed to through our societal structure really take hold in us and some of us don't recognize it. Do you agree with that or how can you expand?
4: I agree with that a hundred percent. I'll just say with respect to that, two things. One is when we talk about race relations, which is really the issue, Mm -hmm. um, how do you create race relations to have an equitable society? Relations involve everybody. It involves all yeah. sides. You can't solve it by solving it with one group and ignoring the other group. So it is important that we see that this is a problem that needs to be solved collectively and in a coordinated way. You can't do it in a fragmented way. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, and I'll go back to you know, something you said earlier, and I just want to elaborate a little bit. For members of socially marginalized groups that have been stereotyped in certain ways, those stereotypes, as we discussed, become associations in people's minds, and and they don't have to endorse it, and they may deny it, but those associations are there. And it creates something called stereotype threat. And what stereotype threat can create disparities and inequities, even without an act of discrimination occurring.
0: And what needs to happen in society as a whole in regards to how we communicate with each other and how we deal with these biases that are kind of thrown at us through everything that we absorb, the news, media, television, film, even in music.
4: That's the issue. I mean, two things we can't do. One is we can't expect to create equity out of a history of inequity by sort of taking small steps. Mm-hmm. It's been... Over 400 years to get us to this place, and we're not going to get out of it without something dramatic, doing things dramatically differently. Second of all, you know, what this research shows is that you can't do it by trusting only in people's intentions to make the world a better place, Mm -hmm. because a lot of the biases that we have we're not aware of. So, good intentions is not enough in terms of it. Mm -hmm. I think what we have to do is think about okay what's the world that we want it to be like what is an equitable world and then come up with the rules in society that makes that occur
0: mm-hmm.
4: okay you know you've got to begin to create structures that not simply compensatory but but structures that are forward thinking about this is what the world should look like. The problem is, To do that, you have to make everybody aware of all these different subtle ways that bias is infecting us. And I think when you get that sort of insight, it's not the cure, but it gets people collectively wanting to address the problem because it's in everybody's best interest if we have a society that's fair and equitable. So it really has to do about informing people, but then following up with the kinds of changes in the way we do things that make the world right.
0: What are tools that I can use when reflecting outside of just critically thinking and trying to be honest with myself? What are tools that I can do to begin to recognize where my implicit biases lie and what I can do about eradicating them?
4: You can't do it through introspection. Okay. You can't Mm -hmm. do it by reflection in the typical sense, because I know people who are racist, 95% of the time they don't behave in a racist way. Mm. it's that the, the damn 5% of the time that causes the problem. Yeah. But if you ask them, are they racist? Well, the first thing they think about is the 95% of the things that they do well, mm-hmm. you know, that are fair. So you can't do it simply by asking people to think about it and reflect on it and gain insight. Mm-hmm. I usually suggest to people, personally, you do a personal audit. How many of your friends are people of a different race or ethnicity? How many times have you done something to help a person of a different race or ethnicity and ask them to look at their behavior? And if their behavior is one that doesn't have these positive connections, then they have to assume that there's some reason why that may occur. Hmm. And at least lets people aware that they might have some sort of implicit bias some people recommend taking the implicit association test which is online freely and people can take that as well and they'll get some feedback about their implicit attitudes but i think what you really have to get people to do is think about what have they done and assume that what they've done is a reflection of what their attitudes really are
0: as far as like people who are in racist groups white supremacist extremist groups what do you say to people in those groups that can show them a, another way and are they capable to being shown the pain of their beliefs?
4: It almost has to be transformational experience. Hmm. People hear what they want to hear. The problem with the extremist ideas in general now is that most of us spend a significant amount of our time in a virtual world. Yes and that's a world we often choose to find people who are like us and what that does is it tends to solidify, Uh, and make impervious the beliefs that we have, because I have lots of social support. Typically, one of the best ways to reduce racial prejudice is to bring people from different races together, to have them work constructively together, to solve problems together, to cooperate together, to get to know one another. And then their own personal experience can overcome any of these predispositions that they had before they uh, had these experiences. Mm -hmm. The problem today is that when you get to choose who you interact with in a virtual world, you choose people who think like you, who act like you, and you avoid people who think and act differently. Uh, What you have to do is almost cull them from the herd to bring people to a different social group, Mm -hmm. to give them different social experiences so that they can come to discover uh, you know, we all want to be right in our beliefs. Yeah. We all, you know, being right, confirming our expectancies uh, makes us feel really good. So the way to change people is to let them discover where they're wrong and do it on their own. So you have to lead them to the experiences that will disconfirm their erroneous beliefs.
0: But it seems like we also need courage collectively. Well, To really attack these things.
4: Yeah, we need courage and we need the skills to do it. We need to know how do you talk to a person of a different race or even more important, how do you listen to a person Hmm. of a different race or ethnicity? Hmm. So I think that, you know, developing these skills in schools or in other ways is, is also really important.
0: I wanna thank you very much for taking time to speak with us. He's Dr. John Dovidio. He studies adversive racism at Yale University. Dr. Dovidio, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rachel Bernstein is a licensed marriage and family therapist and educator and the host of the Indoctrination, podcast, which covers cults, manipulators, and how to protect yourself from systems of control. Rachel, welcome to No More Normal. Thanks so much for being with me.
5: So happy to be here.
0: Social media, we're seeing a lot of people in the past few years adopt extremist views, ideologies, QAnon. It's a creation of the internet. Have you seen an uptick in people coming to you for help?
5: I have seen an incredible uptick, actually a, a saturation. Hmm. I barely have any time to meet with people. I'm now working six days a week. I have always had a full practice, but to the point where I am just so saturated because of not only the amount of clients I have now, but the people who day by day are contacting me, it is just this flow of emails and calls and with a lot of desperation because there is something very intense about this experience where it's not like a loved one got involved in something and you don't really know if it's safe or not. And can they check it out with me? And it has a less anxious cadence, but now it's, I don't know what to do i can't stand being in the same room as fill in the blank yeah and this person now says that he's going to be getting rid of all of his identity papers and just not being a citizen anymore of this country because of this and that and i'm in danger not only do they disagree with me but they need to talk to me about how stupid i am and you know they become so insulting and it's in so incendiary and so there is that intensity about it that mm. really is quite remarkable
0: people are Detangling QAnon, white supremacist organizations, cults, they need to be deprogrammed. But does that remove agency and accountability in this case? How do people who were involved in cults, white supremacist organizations or QAnon, how do they come to reckon with the accountability that they must? carry for their actions or beliefs.
5: It is the hard one and also depends on what you did. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people who feel very guilty because they were just top recruiters for a particular group and other people who really committed crimes against other people or who, for those people, there are a couple things. One is to realize that there is a distinction between something that is your fault or if it's something you can take responsibility for. There's the person who is controlling you, there's the person who's making it all feel like it's okay to do that. That's the person whose fault it is. But because you're a human being and you have a conscience, you can take responsibility for the things that you did that you feel bad about by apologizing for it, by going to those people, by asking for forgiveness, or by getting involved in a cause. Where you educate people about this happening and you tell people, I did this and I want to come clean about it because I want to protect the public from people who still believe that way and still do those things. And it's a very important thing to do, I think, just as a human being in the world and also having that sense of agency like you talked about.
0: Mm -hmm. I know they're not the same. QAnon is much different than a cult, but there seems to be some striking similarities. What are they?
5: On the one hand, you have a leader who has this mystique about them. Mm -hmm. And because the leader is unknown for so long, that adds to the mystique. Because people in that vacuum of information, they will portray someone in the way they want them to be or they wish for them to be. So I think a lot of people kind of deified the leader of QAnon, Mm -hmm. just like a cult leader who comes across as all knowing and all powerful and above everybody else, not just in the group, but in the world, Yeah, you have your own language, You have your own sayings, you have your own expressions, you're connected through that common lingo. Other people then don't speak that language and don't know how you're using that term, but the people in the group do. So then you have the sense that the people in the world outside no longer understand you because they don't speak your language. So that's a very unifying force. And that happened here with a lot of expressions and acronyms that just people in QAnon knew. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a lot of secrecy. So you were supposed to be in contact with a lot of people in the group and be in on what was happening and all the information that was being shared. But a lot of times you weren't supposed to share it with people outside because they would try to take it away from you or they wouldn't understand it. And so you start to have these two lives, Hmm. which also happens in a cult. You have your cult self and the world self, Mm -hmm. and they start to become more divergent. And I think also there is this black and white us versus them kind of mentality. Yeah. There's no gray. We are right. You are wrong. And we are smart and you are stupid and we'll be saved and you'll perish. And that's it. And so anything in between is seen as a weakness. And so you have to take your position and be on the front lines with that position And also with a cult, too, you have this closed loop of information. When you have a question or a concern or something, you're supposed to go back to someone in the cult, in the group, to find out, to get it verified, which is never going to be a successful way of actually doing fact-checking. Yes. And that you are also only supposed to trust the people in the group and not trust anyone else. That everyone else is trying to manipulate you and trying to take you away from something, but the people in the group are the ones who are letting you be free with your ideas, which is always so ironic because people within these groups all think alike mm-hmm. and they say, we are free to think the way we wanna think, but it's all identical. And so how free are they really?
0: Yeah. Okay. I want to thank you again so much for being on the show. Rachel Bernstein, licensed marriage and family therapist, educator, and the host of the Indoctrination Podcast.
5: It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. According to data from the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit in Washington, there have been 183 mass shootings in the United States just in 2021. This spate of gun violence is not new. In fact, it's been around for so long we've become desensitized to horrors. Next week, we look at gun violence, its history, and what the younger generations are doing about it. That's next Sunday on Nemona. As always, we want to thank our guests for sharing their expertise and experience. Special thanks to Jazz Tone, the producer Cheo, Dom Life, Business School, Sundog, and Olad Records for providing music for the show. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawat produced some of the show's themes. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It is produced and hosted by yours truly. Taylor Velasquez handles social media, assists in content generation, and pitches in with editing help. I'm Khalil Ecolona, and for everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for listening.